0: Greetings, Future Fossils. Michael Garfield here, reporting to you from Byron Bay, Australia, at Paradise One, where I sat in last night on my friend Adam Scott Miller's visionary art retreat with some live musical performance to facilitate the last night of painting. As I approach the end of this month-long tour of Australia's transformational festivals and innovation hubs, Got a lot to reflect on, a lot of interesting perspectives to share, but one of the themes that keeps coming back over and over is this notion of the vision that we shape for posterity, the kind of communities we want to leave in place for those unborn generations. So it seems like a totally resonant moment to publish this talk with Tibet Sprague, a friend I met at Boom Festival in Portugal last summer. It's just about six months to the day since I encountered him in the Liminal Village Speaker Series tent. And it's a delight to share this chat with him about how to take a perspective on our role as ancestors and the inheritance of the profound effort, love, and vision of the generations who came before us. Before I launch you into this episode, just a reminder to subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to it. It's a huge help to us on the podcast for getting this program into the ears of everyone who will benefit from it. Of course, if you would like to support this podcast, as well as all of the other work that I'm doing, to hack our culture for the benefit of all beings, you can get up on patreon.com slash michaelgarfield and be the first to know anytime I have some new nugget of writing or music or art, uh, whichever media your senses most delight in. It makes a huge difference in terms of the time I'm able to devote to each episode. I'd like to get this podcast up to once a week and to shift my emphasis from hustling art to facilitating conversations that usher us into a deeper and wider now from which we can collaboratively mastermind the most effective, beautiful And tasty futures we can possibly send children into. Lastly, you are one of many awesome people listening to this show and if you'd like to meet the rest of them, we have a Facebook group. Just look up Future Fossils there and find us and hop in and we'll be glad to have you. And with that, let's start the show. everybody. Welcome to Future Fossils Podcast. I am your host, Michael Garfield. This week, our guest is Tibet <laughs> Sprague, who I met at Boom Festival earlier this year and it, who immediately caught my attention with his very interesting questions at the Liminal Village Group stuff. Mm. So you're just going to have to accept that uh, that the man is... Full of good ideas. Well,
1: so, yeah, Happy welcome to on
0: board, Tibet.
1: Yeah, very exciting.
0: Yeah. So, I acquainted myself a little bit with your your upbringing because you know a big part of this podcast is envisioning the future of our species and you know future social organizations and and cultural modes. And so, I was really interested in some of the essays that you've posted on Medium about your experience with intentional communities and including your, your upbringing in a sort of loosely affiliated intentional community. So maybe we should mm-hmm. just start about your childhood and like, you know, Great. how you kind of came to care about the things that you care about today.
1: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I mean, I feel very privileged, um, honestly, very lucky to have grown up in, in real community and surrounded by you know, and uh, many adults that weren't my parents that I knew that I was friends with that I could go to and that were really experimenting with and exploring living in community and kind of, you know, new culture, as it were, and doing a lot of kind of social experimentation and exploring their own uh, psyches and relationship models and communication models and spirituality. Um, so, you know, at the time, of course, as a child, it's kind of, you're just in the water that you're in. You don't really know that it's different or weird or interesting. It's, it's kind of just uh, the world that you're in. Um, but it was a wonderful way to grow up with with lots of community around me. Um, so specifically, I lived on a, a street where I could walk up the road to one of the earliest eco-villages called Sirius Community. Sirius like the star, not like the mm. uh, way of being. And there was a number <laughs> of community homes up the street. And, uh, and then there was a community called Friends and Lovers that was started by some of my parents' friends that would gather for long weekends two or three times a year and have, like, a, a mini festival, although, you know, smaller scale <clears throat> and much more focused on on just connection and play. And there was a lot of, you know, family over time as, as uh, the community had more and more children. And so, yeah, from a very early age, I, I just – I loved – this community and I, I wanted to figure out how to create that for myself and for my children and kind of iterate on on the experiments and exploration that, that my parents' generation had done. So now I'm trying to really, in some ways, begin, I mean, it's been a lifelong process, but also right now really want to begin manifesting um, a very concrete community in my life and and around me and help other people do that as well.
0: So how is that? I mean, when you talk about your Bay Area community, it just seems that every time I visit the Bay, it's becoming more and more inimical to human existence, (laughs) that it's Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, it's it's just becoming this, you know, people are getting priced out, people are reporting their dissatisfaction with the way that the, the whole scene is going down there. And yet, you know, to read your stuff, it sounds like there's a lot of there's still a lot of hope and promise. And people that are really engaged in some very progressive work there. So what is the status of of that right now for you with your boots on the ground over there?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's something I I think about all the time. It's, you know, a big part of my daily life. You know, I've been here in San Francisco for seven years now. And really, you know, a lot has changed over those seven years. But really over the last three years or so, I'd say, is when, uh, you know, tech began to move in in a really big way since I've been here, of course, there's been many of these cycles uh, in San Francisco and and in other places. But, um, you know, San Francisco in particular has had this huge wave of tech and, you know, Google workers and uh, Facebook and Apple wanting to live in the city. And it's it's very real. And a lot of the artists have left and um, a lot of, uh, you know, the people who are not in tech have had to move and many families have been evicted. And it's, it is depressing. Uh, I have some close friends who grew up here, and they really are just deeply saddened by it and struggling with it. And the Bay Area as a whole, it still has so much going on. And, you know, a lot of the artists, a lot of the musicians moved to Oakland. I mean, it's just kind of across the Bay. And it is, it is a difference. Uh, you know, there, being in San Francisco feels different. And I end up spending a lot more time in, in Berkeley and Oakland. Um, But there's still, you know, across the entire Bay Area, so much richness and exploration, um, kind of the cutting edge of culture, I would say, across so many areas. Of course, technology, but also, you know, in terms of love and relationships and sex and um, just, you know, all areas of culture. I still feel like this is is a a rich place to be with a lot of, of cutting edge exploration happening. I myself am wanting to start a community home in the next six months and think I'll probably end up in Oakland because that's where many, most of my friends are. That's where it's still slightly more reasonable to, to be, although still pretty expensive. And there's a huge uh, culture of, you know, kind of social justice uh, organizations, environmental organizations in downtown Oakland. And it's really a, a pretty amazing energy there right now. Um. So, yeah, there's there's still a lot happening here, and I'm also excited to explore the world and see that, you know, a lot of the things I care about and uh, are spreading around the world. And, you know, maybe people that have had to leave the Bay Area have gone to other cities and other places and brought new ideas. And I think it's great to have some of that um, kind of dissemination of, of things happening and intermixing of ideas from, from different places. So, you know, I, I still feel pretty committed to the Bay Area. My tribe is still here. and. I'm gonna try and continue to keep keep it cool as much as I can. Keep it weird. Keep it cool.
0: I was just talking about this last night with somebody about you know algorithmic newsfeed editing and location specific search results and mm-hmm. this notion that even though we were sold on the internet as a way to collapse space and time in a in a weird inversion, it seems like it's actually it's actually bringing us into or it's coming around now to a point where it's bringing us into uh, a, a more of an engagement with our local environments and mm-hmm. or a different a different and deeper kind of engagement. And it's like that there's this, you know, all of us have this sort of thin gauzy planet-wide layer of friends and acquaintances, but then when you talk about where you know where is my where is my tribe and it's still mm-hmm. here and there's this, still this sense of like you know, even if I wanted to, and I, we we you know we definitely should get to uh, the time that you spent at Tamara this summer. Mm-hmm. Even if I felt like such extraordinary resonance with a community that's going on on another continent, the cost, the this like social cost of uprooting oneself and relocating to Europe, you know, from the United States or to the U.S. from Australia or whatever, it still seems like it's that hasn't gone away it's still really the case that it's the people around you. It's your immediate environment that is sort of most critical.
1: Yeah. As much as the internet has allowed different subgroups and subcultures to to form and, and connect and for people to kind of, I think, find their tribe in a new way, um, especially those that maybe don't feel like they connect with where they grew up. that's great. And that's wonderful. And I think there's a certain kind of human relationship and connection and sustainability in both in, in, in how we live on the planet, but also how we live for ourselves and in our culture that only really happens in, term, in, in you know, face-to-face interpersonal relationship and connection over time. And so I think there's, there's so much value in finding a place to, to be and to settle and to commit to a local community and putting your energy and effort into building up that community and and really being a part of it. And I think, you know, there's various ways in which our current culture doesn't support that. I mean, obviously we can get into sort of the, the deep layer of how our culture is, is focused on, you know, just independence and individualism and the ways that that has destroyed community and is not healthy. But even beyond that, I think there's a, there's a little bit of a sense of, And maybe even in our community that, yeah, you can kind of pick up and travel and go and explore and be a nomad and tap into this global community and, and, uh, you know, people who are into whatever you're into, be it festival culture or any sort of subculture you're a part of and and travel and, and connect with that. And I think that's an important part of the growth process for individuals to explore. You know, there's a couple problems. One is that it's not really sustainable, you know, flying around the world a lot. And, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about this sort of digital nomad lifestyle and uh, traveling from community to community. And, and I'm actually really into that that vision and that idea. And I do think it's also important for spreading ideas. Like, you know, mm. I have some friends who are envisioning a kind of modern Silk Road where you have communities around the world that you can, you are a part of almost like a a virtual nation or, or a, a sort of virtual uh, community that you are can like travel and connect with with different places and spread ideas and share ideas. And I like that idea but you know I I, I do think um it's a li- it can- it's sort of a little selfish in some ways and and not sustainable for the for the globe and that it's really a time to you know for for many of us to really come back to our local community and our local tribe wherever that is or or work to create that if we don't feel like we have that in our lives.
0: Mm. There's something in this that I feel is a tension in society, like regardless of the age, that there's this tension between the empowerment of freedom and you know the ability to get up and walk away. If you look at the revolution of like women entering the workforce in America yeah. and how the economic empowerment of that enabled women to choose whether or not they're going to remain in an abusive relationship, mm-hmm. you know, or whether they're going to remain, that dependency. But then there's this other side of it, which is that there's, something seems lost. Like when people talk about extropian, singulitarian types talk about freedom from the body, mm. you know, <laughs> e- like escaping the, the limitations of the flesh. Mm-hmm. And this this notion that like in the, in the high of true and total transcendence, you're not actually transcending your own escapist urges and that like really only transcending suffering. I mean, if you want to get into like a more of a Buddhist framework for this, like you got Theravadan Buddhism, <laughs> that's like get off the wheel of suffering. Right. But then you got Mahayana Buddhism. that says the illusion of escape is part of the suffering, yeah. you know, and that there's, you know, you really only find true freedom <laughs> through embracing the difficulty and, and, and like actually engaging with the challenges and that maybe what people are seeking on the road is something that you can really only find at home yeah. by really digging in with these, these neighbors that you hate.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) There's, there's a lot in what you just said that that sort of sparks a a sort of set of related tensions that I I feel like I've been noticing a lot. Um, and I I think where to go with it initially, I think, um, I definitely have been exploring and trying to think through this idea of freedom that we currently have. You know, I think our American society is built on this foundation of of freedom uh, or, you know, independence. A uh, rhetoric of freedom. A anyway. rhetoric of freedom, yeah. And what does that really mean? I think, you know, people hold on to that as like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is the foundation of our society. So I need to be able to do what I want to do, like have my guns you know, be free of, of government control in some way. <laughs> but of course, that's it's just a, a some set of agreements about what our society has decided it means to be free. Like there's a certain like list of things. Of course, you know, our society doesn't say you're free to kill someone or take someone's property or, you know, there's so many, it's such a huge list of, of rules. We're not actually that free within our society. It's just a certain specific things and, and a rhetoric and a, like a attachment to this idea of freedom. But like true freedom to me is more about it's more of like a feeling. It's more like am I allowed to be and express the, the fullness of who I am and who I want to be in the world, and how I want to show up. And I think we're not actually able to do that in our society. So many people are are kind of held back and restricted from authentically expressing themselves, first of all, because of practical reasons like maybe the you know racism, sexism, maybe they're Incarcerated because of something they did that is against the the specific set of rules we've agreed on. Um, but also, a lot of it is is this internal holding back because our society has some specific set of norms and and we don't feel like, like you know it's okay to express ourselves. And so, <clears throat> where am I going with this? I mean, it's it's sort of just a it's almost just like a line of thought. I'm trying to like figure out how to reconceptualize this idea of freedom in a way that. It leads to a society where people, vast majority of people actually feel free to be who they want to be. And a mm. huge part of that is also things like a universal basic income and eliminating homophobia and, and sexism and racism institutionally and culturally. So that, you know, everyone has the means and the resources and the ability and uh, the sort of permission from society to actually be Free, But of course, at the same time, ultimately, there is a tension between freedom and sort of community and society, right? Like we can't have full, complete freedom. And so I feel like I've been trying to think about like in, in, in wanting to, to redesign our culture, you have to kind of prioritize, like you have to say, okay, these are the values of our society and like freedom is, is a very important one. But to me, the thing that has to come first that hasn't and, and doesn't in our current envisioning of our culture is community and is you know coming together to create a world that works for everyone and create a society that work, that works for 100%. So, you know, there's there's sort of this tension and ultimately it, it's it gets worked out by humans in relationship and you know are by a legal system, right? Like kind of navigates these tensions between different societies, different prioritized values. Um, but I think we've got this warped sense of of freedom and how. It is primary and it needs to come before anything else um, that has led to, to many of our, our problems in our society. So that's one line of thinking that, <laughs> that you sparked. Well, so t-
0: today, I, you know, this, this seems to be floating around in the air because uh, we just got some new roommates. The two new roommates that came in are much more community and cooperative living minded Mm-hmm. Very explicitly, like let's get some compost going. Let's do food gardens. I'm gonna buy a dry erase board. You know, let's delegate mm-hmm. our chores. Let's do this stuff, and it's it's actually really inspiring. And we've got uh, one corner of the the communal dry erase board now devoted to inspirational quotes, which is mm-hmm. you know. And my buddy Charlie, that one of the new roommates, put up a Parahamsa Yogananda quote. It said, "Environment is stronger than will." which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a performative of his actual like, role in this household, the, the way that the social molecule uh, adjusts the same way that the, the, you know, adding or removing uh, atoms or, or uh, attachments to mm-hmm. a molecule adjusts the balance of electrical charges and, and like, literally morphs the three-dimensional structure of it. I feel like I'm a different person with different roommates. I feel like, so when you get into that that level of it and the issue of how our individual drives and desires are actually sculpted by the agencies of our environments and the people with whom we surround ourselves, and it becomes a much fuzzier area. Like this tension is sort of an illusion because really like the things that I care about are the things that I was imprinted to care about growing up and the things that I care about through my interactions with my peer groups and, and oh, yeah. my mentors. And, and so, of course, I had to like, you know, one of the things that I was imprinted with growing up was the desire to be a devil's advocate, pain in the ass. So, <laughs> so you know, it's not, it felt like the appropriate balancing quotation was, you know, do as thou wilt will be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. You know, the, the code of Thalema. As articulated by Alistair Crowley, and so there's this balance of where it is that the, our individual essence, our personality, that thing that we strive to express freely, is itself constrained or even outright just created by our relationships, and and so it, it gets.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is where it gets into this. Um, one of the things that you you mentioned is you know interest in using blockchain to decentralize our uh, various, you know, parts of our our system and, and you know, build out mm-hmm. some, you know, maybe the, you know, the basis for a universal basic income and this kind of thing. And it's like, it, it seems like blockchain and these other very like decentralized or decentralizing technologies are the medium that's offering us the specific message about a new sense of self-construction that recognizes the self- as emergent from relational dynamics
1: yeah I mean I'm very certainly very curious to follow what's happening in the blockchain world and I think it's a really important powerful technology as we move forward I've gotten a little less attached to the blockchain specifically I mean I absolutely think that decentralization is a hugely important piece of the future in terms of how we make decisions you know governance uh, sort of autonomy of uh, local communities and regions to support themselves in terms of like food and water and you know basic need energy, and <clears throat> you know just having a world where individuals and and communities are are much more empowered and and much more uh you know able to you know, not only like live without uh some sort of uh <clears throat> you know bigger hierarchical sort of dominant system, um, telling them what to do, but, you know, are really living their, their passion and, and thriving in the world in, in this sort of empowered way. And I think the blockchain is a technology that can help us get there in many ways, because it, that decentralization is kind of built into the structure of the technology. Um, however, I mean, there's an example recently um, with the DAO, it was, it was called this Decentralized Autonomous Organization, um, where a group of uh, people very fundamental in the blockchain community wanted to create one of these these first big companies, completely run completely in a decentralized way, where anyone who bought into this company became kind of like a, a shareholder and you know was a co-owner of this organization that basically runs entirely on code, and you know everyone around the world that participated would be making decisions together about what this company would would build and do, and. Kind of a long story to go into the details, but it it basically blew up because there was uh, a bug in the code that was running it, and someone hacked it and stole a bunch of money, and everyone freaked out, and you know they kind of like locked it down and went through this process of trying to figure out, oh, what do we do? We can like roll back to the the version of the of the company before the money was stolen, and but we'd all have to like agree to do that as a group or we can just accept that there was a bug in the code, and we, since we agreed that the company was just going to be based on this, this code, then we should just kind of move forward from here. And so, you know, when there was a huge argument about this, but basically the point is that they forgot about human relationships, and that mm. like, you can't just build a system based on kind of complete disconnection and complete independence and decentralization without realizing that we are Animals that are flawed and that have relationships with each other that are complicated, and of course, there's going to be conflict, and there needs to be a a sort of culture like a, a value system around these systems that allow us to make decisions about how we want to move forward when there is conflict, when there is problems. And so, I've kind of like stepped back a little bit from you know, technology is the answer, this is going to solve all our problems, to like really new culture creation and redefining our value system as a society and as humanity is like the number one thing that we need to be working on right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've heard this stated also by, for example, AI researchers who are, you know, sure that we're going to have sentient artificial intelligences in the next 30 years or or whatever. And, you know, they could be sort of these more intelligent than us post-human beings That, you know, may go way beyond what we can envision and have a lot of power and potentially a power to destroy us or or control us. And so, you know, the first thing to, to do before we build these AIs is to come up with a value system that we can teach them that actually is about, you know, how do we work together as a global community to create a world that works for everyone And, you know, from that basis, then I'm not as worried about whatever happens in technology because it's all going to be coming from a value system that is sort of more based on on peace and harmony and and oneness. So that's kind of been where my, you know, my my thinking about what I want to work on in the world and and what's the next things to focus on has headed from kind of, you know, initially thinking, oh, climate change is, is the most important thing to be focusing on right now, obviously, to, well, you know, maybe we can't really resolve our climate issues without first working and changing capitalism and changing our economic system that requires constant growth. And, Oh, well maybe we can't actually redesign our economic system without a a culture that changes people's relationships with each other and with money and with the world. Um, So what's the thing before that?
0: Okay. So maybe we can't reprogram culture in order to create a new, a new set of like incentives for globally beneficial behavior without and then we bottom out in that that sort of network where individual and collective are co-defining right it's like the last person that i i just spoke with susan molnar is a an educator she works with a lot of kids and you know it's this thing about anytime i speak to a teacher it's like well we're you know we're building the future one mind at a time you know mm-hmm. just plugging away but then again you're also acting as that environment you're acting as the educational surround within which these young people are uh, raised and encouraged to adopt those new attitudes so it is yeah. when you get to that point of like how it, how is it that we actually start to steer our values in a in a direction that's necessary but not sufficient as a a prerequisite for all of these other social changes. It's like, that's where it gets really.
1: Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, culture, you know, the beginning of culture is cult and I really uh, get really nervous whenever you talk about like reprogram, you know, changing culture in some way where it feels like you're, you want to tell someone what to do or how Mm. to behave because I think it's also really important to have a diversity of culture and there's so many you know ideas of how to be in the world that are can be successful and are are beautiful and, and important to maintain. You know, at the, at the same time it's it's pretty clear that the dominant culture, sort of western culture, or even yeah, just the majority of, of our, our civilization is designed in such a way that if it continues as it's going right now, we are going to destroy the planet's ability to support us. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of death, a lot of destruction, and we may even <laughs> blink out as a species. if It's definitely possible. So, you know, I think there's a lot of angles to work on. And I think that high level systemic change, economic systems uh, change is really important. I think political work is really important. I think technology and you know building uh, tools that can bring carbon out of the atmosphere and you know work on this sort of climate piece is really important I think a lot of individual work like personal growth work on e- each one of us doing our own work to resolve the things in us that that prevent us from kind of living our most enlivened selves and and bringing our gifts into the world is really important because then we can kind of share uh, our inspiration and our energy with the people around us um, but yeah, on some level, I think there are some really fundamental things that, that do need to shift in our culture if, if we're going to continue to succeed on this planet and thrive. And it, the person that has articulated this best for me is Charles Eisenstein. Definitely. Uh, sacred economics and, and the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. And he, he kind of talks about this ascent of our civilization and why we are where we're at. And he boils down his, his fundamental idea of the core things that have led to our culture being the way that they are now that, that didn't used to be the case um, before kind of like agriculture and our, our current modern civilization is this idea of the separate individual self um, that's like, you know, so fundamental to a lot of spiritual traditions that have arisen in in the last several thousand years and our obviously our economic system that tells us that the best way to be is sort of selfish, person who's getting as much as we can for ourselves, that not only best for us, but it's best for society, right? You know, in this competitive marketplace, that's going to produce the most value, it's going to create the most more wealth that in theory will then trickle down to everyone else. And in some ways, it's true, like, I think capitalism has created a lot of wealth, it's just completely, uh, unequally distributed, and has reached a point where we're out of, you know, it's such an extractive system that we're out of resources, we're going to destroy the planet if it continues and so now it's time for something different. And so the key change that needs to happen there from this this selfish individualistic way is is to re- remember how interdependent and interconnected we actually are on this planet. Obviously, in our communities and in our cities, it's easier to see, but really, you know, our actions have such a, a direct impact on on so much of the planet and remembering you know on so many different levels, you can think about and and reconnect with this this idea and feeling of oneness with the planet with this sort of ecosystem of our of our world and it's a very different mindset when you think from that state of of being of like, oh yeah, you know all my actions actually do impact the people around me and the world so that's kind of the the first big switch is the separation to oneness, and the next is is from this feeling of scarcity to to realizing that there is abundance. You know, from scarcity, it's easy to be greedy because there isn't enough for everyone, and so you better get as much as you can for yourself, or you're going to be the one that gets left behind. Uh, But, you know, this planet has so much abundance, and we have built the technology that we need to provide for everyone's basic needs across this planet. I, I fully believe that. And it's just a sort of political issue to decide that we actually want to live in a in a society on a planet where everyone's basic needs are taken care of political issue and a kind of like crisis of imagination, I'd say, where we don't hmm. think that we don't think that that's possible. But in reality, it, it really is. And it's, it's almost like, like I get really, sometimes like so passionate about how it's such a simple switch, this mindset switch that needs to happen of like, individualistic to communitarian to interconnected and, you know, scarcity to abundance. And yet it's so hard because we're embedded it deep in a culture and deep in systems where it's scary to let go of, of what our society tells us we need to be doing, you know, going along the, the treadmill of school to job to building up savings for retirement and for your kids to money and, and stuff is the thing that's going to provide us safety and security and, and happiness. And trying to like step out of that and be one of the pioneers to do that is is scary. Um, So it's like a simple switch, but it's also really hard to make that happen on a large scale. So, yeah. So I think like all these layers of of work are important and the work we can do in ourselves, the work we can do in our communities and then systemic work like fighting for a universal basic income. As an example, large scale economic systemic policy change would be so powerful in helping create this shift because immediately it frees up people's energies to not just be focused on putting food on the table every day. And it lets them be empowered to pursue their dreams and find a job they like and get educated. And it, and it's empowering. It's like our, our current social safety net, it tells people, like, you are not good enough right now. We're going to give you some money for a little while to get back on your feet, but we're going to watch everything you do because we don't <laughs> trust you. And... <laughs> And, you know, switching to this sort of just universal income where everybody got their base amount every year is is kind of like society saying, because you're a human on this planet, we think you deserve to live. We trust you to use this money to figure out how to, you know, best support yourself and move forward and and provide for yourself and contribute to the world. And I think it's just such a different mindset that people don't really know how big of a change it would be.
0: So, you know, this is an interesting thing, because I started out deeply skeptical of universal basic <laughs> income, not in the, <laughs> d- to the degree that it's not a good idea, but just that it became so difficult. It, w- it started for me being so difficult imagining how it would actually be implemented. Right. And then more recently, I read uh, a talk that was given by, of all people, Lynn Rothschild, who mm. said to, uh, I forget who it was, it was like an IMF, you know, very mm. uh, powerful globalist Influencers and her message in this this talk that I read was that due to the totally unbalanced accumulation of the wealth that we've created due to the tilting game board that's moving the power away from labor and toward capital, the people that own the server farms yeah. and then due to you know the related trend and technological unemployment, that they're going to lose the foundation of their wealth, which Mm -hmm. is the consumer base, if they don't do something about it, that actually it's like the entire system, ironically, the entire system requires a middle class, it requires consumers who are spending money and, and feeding into this engine of ingenuity that Capitalism claims to be, and so she was actually saying, "You know maybe we should actually provide some sort of <clears throat> basic income to these people just so that they can continue <laughs> to buy stuff because yeah. otherwise who are we who are we making products for? who are we ruling if yeah. we're not, you know if, if all of these people die, and then like the whole tower falls over you yeah know? so there's a strange sense in which it seems that the process of the you know, the, the shit hitting the fan for everyone right now includes that the, I don't want to call it like a deus ex machina, but it does seem like the surprise implementations are actually going to come from the places that we least suspect them here, which is from like the barons of industry or post-industry. or.
1: Yeah, I think there is some concern there. You know, the way that a basic income is implemented is is really important. And there are ways it could be implemented that wouldn't actually be creating a better world.
0: Talk about that for a second. What's the nightmare UBI situation?
1: Well it's it's kind of just what you were saying. And I I honestly am not going to be able to articulate well enough sort of implementation details of of how it might work. But you know, the there's and there's a lot of experimentation that still needs to happen. But you know, there's an argument that a basic income could be sort of co-opted by neoliberal capitalism to do kind of just what you're saying is to flood the market with more money that so that people can continue to be consumers and continue to buy more stuff and continue to grow the economy in a way that is not sustainable. And it would be almost like, it, first of all, it would be a way to eliminate a lot of the other social safety nets because you could say, oh, we just, we'll just do a basic income and then people need to it, be able to figure out stuff on their own. So it's almost could be reinforcing this, you know, American Vision of everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, now that you have a basic income, you can right. do anything. Uh, and and you know that you know people worry about. Also, it could just cause inflation; prices will just go up. There's a lot of arguments against that. But I think it it does need to be implemented in such a way that it's not taking away from healthcare as a goal, universal healthcare as a goal, um, mental health assistance. I think you know that's really important. And it's it's not about oh, let's just replace all of our other uh, social safety nets with this cash grant, and then we're done. And there's no more government needed. It's about agreeing as a society that we value everyone's life, and everyone deserves a shot mm. to to make something of their life, and is is trusted to do something well with that. And society is still going to have your back. You know, if you are mentally ill and, and need some support, or have a, a major accident and and you know need medical care. Um, so. You know, I think there's going to be some battles fought about implementation because one reason I, I, I feel that basic income is a good first step is actually because I think that it is very doable in the next decade, even in this country, um, because it is supported by you know the left who, who wants to alleviate poverty and reduce inequality. It's supported by libertarians who want less government, who want, you know, you know, currently welfare requires a lot of bureaucracy and people watching over you. And so we can eliminate government. And uh, economists on the right are even in support because, you know, kind of what you were just talking about, it keeps money flowing through the system. So there's, you know, there's a lot of support, but then there'll be the battles about the actual implementation details. And that's going to be really interesting to watch in in the coming years in different countries as they explore it. And so, again, like, it it comes down to this culture question for me. It's like, are we going to be implementing this from a place where we're still in like short-term thinking focused on profit focused on the kind of current system power dynamics and <clears throat> the people in charge wanting to maintain their power or are we going to be focused on how do we redesign our world for everyone mm. and from there how we do these implementations will will really dramatically change
0: yeah i guess again it just comes back to that issue of even universal basic income as a technology can be weaponized and if it's not emerging out of the correct value set you yeah. know if it's not coming coming into the culture landing in a way that it's you know i mean it's that's actually you know uh, i don't know if you are you a science fiction guy mhm yes. yeah so so uh there was uh, charles Strauss wrote a novel mm-hmm. called singularity sky i think that was his first novel and he in this book There's a culture of, you know, post-singularity, interplanetary merchant society that goes, moves from system to system. And their their interest is in acquiring the, basically like the intellectual property of a particular civilization and then moving Mm -hmm. on. But in the process of doing so, they make these deals where they offer this extraordinary wealth to one of their target civilizations, that ends up destroying the civilization because mm. it is their their interaction. Even though it feels like exactly what these people want. Oh yes, you know we're we're, we're acquiring all of these profound superpower technologies, you know, but it ends up disrupting it so violently mm. that there's there's nobody <laughs> left over at the end of it. You know, it's it's to sort of stand here on the edge of the the woo spectrum here. <laughs> I've always thought about that with respect to why it seems to take so long for us to implement certain technological solutions. You know, like if we have, if it really is as the conspiracy theorists claim and like free energy is being deliberately suppressed by Mm -hmm. a ruling class, Mm -hmm. might it not be for good reasons? Might it not be because we are not like spiritually and psychologically prepared to handle unlimited energy at the fingertips of every 13 year old, Hmm. you know, that's, or like, you know, every, every like despotic local gangster, you know, it's just like these, you know, in a way it's kind of lucky. We're kind of lucky that we're not getting there as quickly as we want.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would actually, I mean, I, I hear you, and then I would kind of argue the opposite in some ways. I, I still think we need to slow down a lot, um, and I, you know, in the age of of the the number of leaks we've seen happen, and just in the last couple of weeks of this election, I would say it'd be pretty hard to hide something of that magnitude. And I, I think we are still moving forward in ways that we're not prepared for. I mean, drones, AI, 3D printing, like all these things, virtual reality, all these things are going to have a huge Impact that you know, self-driving cars, huge impact on society that I don't think we're ready for, and has not been thought through uh, to the degree that it needs to be um, before you know widespread implementation has happened, or is happening, or will happen in the near future. So, as much as possible, I think we actually do need to slow down both you know the sort of growth mindset, but you know, and while I'm very much a technology person and believe in the power of technology, and I think there are, are many. Things that are going to you know, new technologies that are going to continue to contribute to creating the more beautiful world. No matter what, I think <laughs> we need to we need to slow down and take some breaths and reevaluate what we're doing here before we we plunge forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have you read uh, the Nexus trilogy? I read the it, first book. Explain this to listeners
0: too, just so that they or like the basic uh,
1: the gist yeah, of it. This trilogy by Ramesh Nam, as maybe is that how you say his name? I think so. Yeah set in 2040 and basically there's a, a drug that i think is made up of you know little like nano machines that goes into your brain and can be programmed to provide you know initially just kind of psychedelic experiences or brain boosting or memory boosting and then gets further developed to to allow for connection to the internet and connection to other people's brains and you know sort of telepathy and he does a good job of envisioning what the how this might affect the world and it's it's a really like fascinating concept to think about okay well we have this new technology, now it's going to get used by all these different factions around the world who have different ideas. And there's the people who are trying to create global unity and oneness through, you know, the monks who are like using it to help them meditate. And there's the American government that's wanting to use it to control people and, and prevent it from spreading and only use it for themselves and create super soldiers. And so it's like, it's, you know, it's just another technology in the end, even though it's so powerful. And on the one hand, I think it's pretty hard to slow down the rate of of this technology and, you know, we have to kind of accept it's just going to keep happening, but all the more reason to try and work on the social technologies and and work on how we live together and and what our value systems are alongside it as quickly as possible to match the rate of of progress that's happening on the sort of technology side. So, you know, then that maybe could bring us back to to some of the other topics we were potentially wanting to discuss like Tamara, this community I visited in in Portugal, Mm -hmm. I think is a really good example of people who are doing this work and I'm also happy to talk about some of the, the thoughts and ideas of how to create this culture in our daily lives, in our communities that, that I think are, are interesting or that I'm starting to explore more.
0: With respect to Tamara, you know, because I read that piece that you wrote also on core lessons in community building from Tamara. And you mentioned in that that you, a big part of Tamara is their emphasis on redesigning or healing the relational dynamic, interpersonal relationships, and specifically like romance, like love, love and, and sexuality, yeah. and basically that we can't live that we're not gonna ha- we're not gonna have peace between nations without peace between the sexes, you know. But you question uh, whether the kind of community that you seek to build needs to place the same kind of emphasis on that, or there was some concerns about, you know, the relative weight of that specific issue. And I don't know, I'm just curious yeah. to, you see, where, where is it that you think like intimate relationship and, and sexuality falls into this larger conversation?
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe I'll take a step back for a moment and just explain mm-hmm. high level about a little bit about Tamara. And I think it, it connects uh, to some of the things we were talking about earlier and in, in sort of how we're raised and in the environment that we're in has such an effect on we are and how we express ourselves in the world. And also, you know, one of the things that uh, is really interesting about Tamara to me as a community is their their level of commitment uh, to community and to the work they're doing together above and beyond kind of individual freedom. I think they're a really good example of this people committing to this to community, this particular community, but also to the sort of global work that this, this community is trying to create and putting that ahead of you know, whatever specific other individual goals they have, but then that kind of leading to them having a more uh, fulfilling life and a, a more joyful life where they are able to pursue their passions and um, within the kind of like context of this community. So, yeah, so Tamara was formed as sort of a germ in in Germany 40 years ago, <laughs> and the founder... Dieter Doom um, wanted to figure out how to create a peaceful world. Like he was part of the the student movement in Germany in, I guess the '60s and '70s, which didn't really succeed. And he was like, "Well, why isn't this working? Why are we not able to come together to create a more harmonious, peaceful world?" So for forty years, this this community has been trying to explore this this question in every area. So they they look into how do we live more in harmony with the planet through, you know, permaculture and solar and, you know, just different kinds of technologies for that are more sustainable. Um, but yeah, they do a lot of work on the sort of social, interrelational, interpersonal dynamics. And being there feels really amazing because the people there are, it, it's just like a, if you get to feel what it's like to be in a culture, in an environment where People are happy and sort of in harmony in a different way with each other and and the world. And it's not that they're like, like always happy. Like the issues come up they process, and all the time, but they they process them in such a way that they don't sort of linger and fester and um, lead to big blow up conflicts and fights that can fracture the community. So you know they have really amazing processes, <clears throat> in particular this process called forum, where they do a lot of sharing and you know community processing of, of issues and interpersonal issues and emotional stuff. And definitely a huge piece of that is is the way that they process and interact with and relate to, to romance and to sex and partnership. And it is, you know, their philosophy, I, on one level, I'm fully on board with it. I think, you know, the way that they describe it is they're working for a world where there's love free from fear. They You know, they'll call it free love as well, but it, it's kind of like a triggering... Uh, yeah, phrase as, that has a lot of different connotations from,
0: you know, the the kind of free love where you at Woodstock. Yeah, you know, that's like a different. But
1: it's but it's almost it's an iteration of that on some level, right? It includes non monogamy for most people most of the time there. But the goal is not like oh have as much sex as you can. The goal is to have as much love and intimacy and connection in your life as possible in an authentic way. And not be hiding things from one another, from your partners, from your friends, from your community, and not be living from a fearful place where you're not, where you're, you know, unable to express your desire and to um, find the, the type of connection and relationship that you want to have in your life. Um, so I, I think that, you know, and I'm happy to go into some more details about that, but I think that they're really right on, and you know the way of, of being that they've kind of discovered and explored and continue to explore. I just think that it's also really hard, and it's it's a big step from our current um, culture to that, and it really requires a supportive community that's all kind of on board with this vision and and prepared to process jealousy and process shame and, and process <clears throat> the types of issues that come up and. Interpersonal relationship, especially when it comes to sex and love, in a new way. And our, our current society can be very repressed around sex and very repressed around attraction and desire and, and all these things. And so it's, it's very triggering and <clears throat> it's intense for people to try and like step into a new mindset around that. And so I think my only question was is it necessary as a sort of early step or process for communities that? that I want to build, and that, you know, a lot of the people in, in my greater uh, community are talking about building to include that from the beginning, or is it something that we can sort of move towards over time and slowly integrate and slowly explore? So that, that was really where my
0: you kind of have to seduce free love, you know?
1: Yeah, it's exactly. Like it's, <laughs>
0: it's, well, that's you know, the, the, there's a, there's an interesting thing there with respect to the technocultural surround that supports. This. I don't know if you're familiar or with there's a, a wiki called Sex 3.0 that I've mm, seen yeah. circulating online. And mm. it makes the case that the contemporary conversation around non-monogamy is in large part due to the way that the the distributed agency of our technological infrastructure expresses itself in human psychology. So basically <laughs> they're saying that like what we what we take to be the normal human relational mode is due specifically to our embeddedness in a society that is rooted and shaped by agriculture, the enclosure of land, the cultivation mm. of resources, the paternal inheritance of wealth, yeah. the you know the ownership of one's wife and children as an extension of the ownership of one's you know livestock and that predating that you get the like sex at dawn chris ryan thing which is predating that it seems that the self-construct of nomadic foraging or hunter-gatherer society lended itself to something more like this where the, the ego boundaries between members of a community are less rigid the more of the wealth, you know, the wealth is shared. There's not such a clear notion on property. Yeah. And that, that seems to be reviving in light of the way that the internet has created all of these opportunities for peer-to-peer architecture, as well as a, a more distributed sense of self, you know, mm. a more non-local sense of self. <clears throat> and that, that, therefore, it's like that we're exploring a wider set of possible personality strategies or cultural strategies now mm-hmm. that include monogamy as a preference and also include non-monogamy that include, there's just so many different relational styles now. And that it is in part because, you know, more and more of human nature is becoming digital or is becoming so in, so deeply informed by digital society. And one of the properties of the digital world is that everything is shared that like, as soon as it's online, it's immediately copied and shared and moved around. And so this, again, it gets back to this issue of environment versus will. And like, I wonder maybe if it's not so much a prerequisite, uh, although it's nice when I guess it's nice if you were able to start an intentional community from that place, but it's, it's maybe less that it's a prerequisite or a necessary initial component Of a community so much as it is that in a nudist colony nobody has the same kind of body issues that we do in yeah. the city, and that maybe as we become more and more transparent to one another through this sort of inevitable march of internet tracking and, and surveillance and you know covalence mm. that we're just going to get more and more comfortable with that kind of totally transparent and authentic Relationship that's grounded in a sharing economy, rather than you know, so that so like our relational mode actually sort of it may be like shaped or emerge out of the ways that we're learning to relate to one another in other domains. You
1: know, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, and I think it definitely it sort of emerge you know, in their case, in Tamara's case, and I think in general, this this concept of free love emerges from. Uh, from transparency and from trust. And you know, I think they, the commitment that they made to, the, to, their, to themselves and to their community was to building complete trust with each other, like the, the foundation of their community. And I think the reason that they really work is that they really trust each other. And the reason that they trust each other is because they're transparent. They share what's going on with the community. They have, you know, pretty much every day of the week, they gather in these sharing circles and communicate to each other what they're feeling, what they're thinking, who they're attracted to, you know, whether where there's conflict in a relationship, it, it's all kind of out in the open. You know, they're really taking this and definitely you see this happening more and more on the Internet on a global scale of people sharing on Facebook, sharing deeper, more vulnerable things. Um, but, you know, in this local context with a, a smaller group of people in the same place over time, it gets really deep, you know, and, and especially since they're also committed to it. They really all know each other incredibly well and they are committed to sharing. And so from that kind of emerges this, oh, you know, when we are really sharing our full selves, like, yeah, we're attracted to lots of people. That's a natural human, uh, you know, primal thing is to feel attraction to people. And it can be just sort of physical, you know, sexual, but it can also go deeper than that. And I think we have a lot of people in our lives that we feel connected to and want to have relationship with. And so first of all, just acknowledging that is scary in our, in a, in a society where monogamy is the norm, you know, so many people think that if their partner so much as like looks at another woman and has uh, attraction or, you know, imagines connecting with them in in some way that is cheating, you know, that is like breaking the the agreements of our our monogamous and, you know, marriages. And so that's it's just not true, right? It's not like authentic. It it, it requires us to be um, not expressing our our, our authentic selves. And so I do, yeah, I do think it, this love free from fear philosophy really just emerged from trying to figure out how to live in a way where uh, we can trust each other. And that, you know, requires this, this really deep sharing. So I am curious to see how how the internet and how the the type of sharing that happens on the internet starts to affect culture in that regard. even you see like so many leaks about celebrity, this person cheating on that person. it's in a way it's like horrible, and there's this you know deep invasion into people's lives and pe- everyone is like thinking about celebrities and not thinking about their own lives. But in another way, it starts to almost normalize like, oh, well, if there's so much cheating happening or you know. Maybe the, there's something else going on, and we need to reevaluate how we think about <laughs> marriage and connection and relationship. It's interesting. We're cheating and divorce. I mean, you know, I don't know what it is. Fifty percent of people uh, of marriages and in a divorce or, or infidelity. It's definitely clear that our, our current structures around romantic relationship are not the only way to live and not serving many of us. In being happy in our, in our lives and our relationships.
0: I mean, if they are, as the wiki argues, if they are the consequence of an economic mode, then it would make sense that an economic mode that doesn't actually suit the human being would Mm -hmm. lead to relational styles that don't suit the human being, or at least that that no longer suit the human being, like in in light of everything that we now know. Yeah, right? I mean, or don't I see wanna, all human you know,
1: beings ahead. all the time, right? Maybe right. some people are happy and have fulfilling long-term marriages, but it's not serving a lot of us.
0: Well, that's actually, you know, <clears> when, <throat> I, when I when I met you, I was reading William Irwin Thompson's book, The American Replacement of Nature, mm. and he makes this distinction in that book between, and he says every every world age, every historical epic, has. This tension between two different kinds of people, and he says, you know, if you look at um, the industrial world, it was between the industrialist and the artist. That as soon as we learned to differentiate culture and nature, then some of us wanted to dominate nature with culture, and then mm-hmm. some of us wanted to return to nature with this this you know retro romantic mode that you know this this delusion, honestly, a delusion that we had actually ever left it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, but both of those strategies are obsoleted by the post industrial information society. And now what we're dealing with are the technocrats and the mystics. Mm. And so he says, like, in this new balance, we have this sort of, you know, we, we can hold the mystic up against what he calls the moralist. I mean, it's like, if you think about this in terms of the strategies that people take to change, to like future shock, to, to everything's happening too fast. Mm-hmm. That some of us are going to want to dig in our heels and settle down and put up a fence and really dedicate ourselves to a particular tradition, you know, a sense of you know anchoring ourselves in in lineage and moral values, Mm -hmm. and that others are are going to be inclined or or are, are naturally predisposed to moving stepping out into this new space and anchoring their home again it's kind of like touches on that digital nomadism thing Mm -hmm. it's like that the the in a way that this is this is an old tension this is the tension between like a mosaic or or like Aaron, you know between the mystical wanderer and the people that actually like settle and worship inside of a temple you know rather than in the wilderness Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and so you have you have uh This thing about, like he says about the mystics, that they can't settle down in a sense that there's the attempt to simplify life, to make it manageable, to ground it all in one one set of values that doesn't have an opposing set, you know, Mm -hmm. that's doomed to failure. Mm -hmm. Because the commitment to this embrace of the world and all of its dizzying complexity requires the acceptance of one's self as other one's capacity for evil the acknowledgement that that there there is no one place that is truly more your home than another place hmm. you know at this point i'm kind of lost the uh, the, the through <laughs> the through there but i mean it does seem like all of this is is at play in you know that there is sort of an we're moving out of like one right way and into an entire ecosystem of strategies
1: yeah, but, you know, the thing that that I keep coming back to, though, which is a tension there, is I feel like there does need to be some – or almost that there doesn't need to be, but that there there is some, like, core, deep values that we can and do share. And I'm really curious about this because I, I, you know, I'm totally on board with a sort of plurality of, of belief systems being really important and – And also sort of flexibility and adaptability and resilience being also really important for our continued uh, evolution as a species and and ability to, um, you know, be on this planet. At the same time, like, you know, are we basically then saying, okay, we have to give up on trying to come to some global agreements and some, you know, larger community agreements about how we want to live on the planet and then see what happens, and you know maybe uh, <laughs> maybe we're we're not going to figure it out, and maybe we're going to just you know have our brief shining moment on this planet as a as a species. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think. There's, I mean, a there's rainforest a- doesn't
0: need shared values. You know, a rainforest has. If you talk about like Charles Eisenstein, you know, making the case that that we're moving out of weeds growing in an empty lot, this unchecked expansion of capitalism. Into yeah. a mature rainforest type ecosystem where we have found a way to integrate destruction and decay, yeah. and you know that there's that it, it may be that we just really do need to trust the transcultural tension between perspectives here. To it's sort of like a, a an upgraded postmodernized version of that. You know, trusting the invisible hand of the marketplace. You know, that maybe, maybe there's something more humane than that, but maybe there really isn't, I don't
1: know. Right. Well, then the question is where, where where's the place for agency? Like is, you know, I certainly don't think that we, um, should just kind of sit back and and let things flow and follow what feels right in the moment entirely. Like, I think it's important Mm. to have a vision for ourselves and our own lives and for how we want to see the world and, and try and you know, move towards that as much as we can in our own life at the very least. And, you know, yeah. So it's like, there there is this interesting tension between kind of being in the, in the moment, in the complexity, kind of flowing with it, exploring and having a direction and having an agency and, and a, and a goal. Um, there's, that's an interesting tension on like an individual level that I, that I definitely explore. And on on the, the bigger scale, that, and I think one of the the main shifts that I actually do see happening as I explore the world and and um, explore different cultures and different festivals and gatherings is this kind of like almost embracing and inclusion of of this complexity and these tensions and this diversity and a huge piece of it actually I think is trying to embrace the feminine, right? It's mm. like we've been so you know the last. Whatever thousands of years have really been patriarchal and dominated by by masculine thinking, and it goes back a little bit to the tension you were bringing up much earlier, where uh, you're talking about the kind of detachment dis- from you know some Buddhist traditions who are really focused on being completely unattached and completely just in in the now, in the present, and you know I think that's a very powerful thing, but it's it's sort of like, it's not really inclusive of the whole of experience and the whole of what's going on in the universe. And I think there's been uh, a lot of, I've seen a lot of, uh, of spiritual teachers recently trying to bring in what what feels like the, the the more feminine energy and is more embodied and more kind of expressive and inclusive of experience, of somatic experience. And Tantra is kind of like where a lot of where this comes from. And I do think that one of the answers that is really important for for our society to to get back to a, a sort of Im, imbalanced place with each other in the world is to bring back in the feminine, bring back in our connection with, with the earth, with sort of our bodies, with, you know, this this other kind of energy. And through this tension that has been very, like, one-sided for a while, very, like, masculine and mental and, you know, controlled and finding a balance in this tension, I think that's a way that we're, we can kind of like embrace the, the fullness and the complexity of everything that's happening in a balanced way that I believe will, will kind of lead to uh, a much more harmonious way of being on the planet. And, you know, it brings back to what Tamara is trying to do. And a lot of their work in relationships and sex and love is about empowering the feminine and creating a, a culture where there's a sort of balance between the two. So, I'm not saying there's there's an answer there either, but I <laughs> I do think that there are some like real important steps in our lives and in our communities that we can make to find a better balanced way of, of being on this planet. And yeah.
0: Well, I mean, on that note, ever since I read Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, and he makes the case that really we're moving out of an age of answers. And into an age of questions where Mm -hmm. like answers are just on tap, you know, but like coming up with a really good question is what actually creates value in this, in this, you know, the world that we're transitioning into. So I'm at a point now where I'm like, yeah, answers. So 20th Mm -hmm. century, that's more interesting. And especially with this podcast specifically, I want to provide really good questions, you know, like the questions that we're getting into here And I want, I want these questions explored by our community of listeners and, and for this to, to just, to, for this to be the seed of an inquiry rather than a dispatch from on high.
1: Yeah. That doesn't
0: really, doesn't really serve anybody in the, or it doesn't serve as many people as it does to actually just create, to get the conversation going. And so this is where I'd like to, because we cannot end this without getting into inheritance day, because <laughs> I really, I mean, that was actually when I heard you talk about that at Boom. That's that's when I knew I needed you on the mm-hmm. podcast. So, please tell people a little bit about what this idea is and, <laughs> and how it's taking shape and, and yeah. where it's headed.
1: So, I mean, I've talked a lot about over the last you know hour plus this this deep feeling that we need we need to be creating a new culture, um, even just, even for ourselves. I mean, I want to be living in a way where I feel empowered, where I feel, uh, like I'm living my passion and I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm joyful and, um, and it's sustainable for me and for my community and the people around me are happy. So in thinking about how to do this, we, You know, one of the ideas we've come up with is, well, you know, I think this is sort of obvious that the way that culture gets created and passed on and continues is through traditions and and through stories. Sort of like the narratives we tell ourselves about why why we're here, what we're doing as people and as humans, and then the rituals that we create that tell that story to, you know, and sort of reinforce it over time and can pass it down to our children. Um, So we had this opportunity to create a new ritual, and it was part of this. Event in San Francisco called the Urban Eating League that a friend of mine started, where there's five different houses that are all kind of host houses and they cook a meal for different groups of eaters that are coming th- around throughout the night and spending half an hour at each house and rating each house on their food and their creativity. And there's always a theme. And so it's this really like fun kind of like competition, but in, you know, in, a, in a, the most fun possible way. It
0: was like speed dating for slow food. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but, you know, everybody gets in on the on the theme and the eaters dress up and they have different teams that do different activities and the, and the houses create these experiences. And so we were a host and the theme this time was utopia slash dystopia. Mm. And so, you know, being who I am, obviously, after this conversation, I wanted to try and envision a utopia and, and try and help people see that possibility. And so uh, a few of my close friends and I sat down and we came up with this idea of imagining that we were 150 years in the future and had created uh, a world where you know everyone's needs were met, we had solved climate change, we were living in harmony and balance with the earth. There you know we had eliminated in, you know injustice and uh you know inequality and racism and sexism and all this stuff. And You know, in that future, there's a new holiday called Inheritance Day, which is honoring the ancestors who kind of got us to that point. And so, you know, people came into our house. We had this whole beautiful setup in my living room and we initiated them into this. Oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're in 2166 and welcome to, you know, Inheritance Day. Like, thanks for joining us for our particular Inheritance Day celebration and so each course of the meal, it was kind of like Passover. Each course of the meal honored something that had, you know, our ancestors had accomplished. Like, you know, the clean energy revolution where we ate these black sesame covered falafel balls that rem- represented coal and this black lentil <laughs> that represented petroleum. And as we ate them, we were like recarbonizing ourselves and the planet. Or, you know, the second course was these little <clears throat> food pyramids with all the food groups that represented a universal basic income worldwide, everyone's basic needs being met. And the third one, we were chewing these bitter cacao nibs that kind of represented the, the pain of oppression over centuries. And they, they like, drank this sweet spiced milk that represented sort of overcoming all forms of oppression and creating a uh, sort of just equal society. Um, and then the last course, there was this big stew that represented the Earth coming together as kind of a global community and agreeing to to figure out how to live together in harmony. And we did different little ex you know, fun games as part of it. Like during the uh, the course with the food pyramids, we did a bun dance to celebrate abundance, and we uh, you know got up and shaked our booties. And then at the end, we did this kind of unity sound healing ceremony that was. The sort of final bells, because there were different like bells for every course. So it was really fun, and it, you know, actually, one of the other really interesting things it, it was on December twelfth, and it was the day that the Paris Accords were signed. So we were mm. actually playing a live clip of, or you know, recorded earlier that day of uh, the president of France talking about how the world had December twelfth, two thousand fifteen, will go down in history as the first time the world came together to do something about climate change. And we were saying, you know, remember back then, when, like the first Inheritance Day when, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the world was just starting to come together and figure some things out. So people, you know, they loved it. They had fun with it. And then they, I, I really got the sense and, and feedback that they left with a, a feeling of like, oh, wow, like, OK, how would I, how would I be living my life? And, and I, left, I gave people this question as they left the house. So imagine you were those ancestors 150 years ago. What would you be doing with your life right now? to try and move us, you know, towards this, this better way of being or, or more in balance way of being. So it was fun and, and people loved it. And it was something that um, we decided we had to do again. And this year we're going to just make it like a holiday that we celebrate and tell other people about it and try and get people around, around the country and the globe to celebrate inheritance stay with us both as a kind of futurist game but also you know honoring our own ancestors and and everything that has led us to this amazing world that we live in today has the thought experiment of inheritance
0: day led to like have you gotten any feedback or have you noticed in your own life that taking this as an object of contemplation has led to any profound insights or or uh, changes in your behavior the way that you navigate and, And live in the world or?
1: Um, I think that it really reinforced this, this kind of hope and optimism that I have that we can figure out how to live on this planet and, and with each other with, without violence. Yeah. I mean, I do think that I've started to guide myself by, by kind of that question, like, okay, what can I do to better create nonviolence, peace, harmony, connection intimacy love into my life and into the world's uh, life for my friends for my community and my children and you know i obviously coming up with this idea already was was thinking that way and on some level but but doing it and seeing how powerful it was and how much i think it, it did influence friends and, and people told me that it had an impact and and sort of conversations that we have about this with this sort of hopeful vision and energy that just is focused, to, you know, pointing towards a, a hopeful vision of the future uh, is really uplifting. And, you know, it's it makes me happier given the, the kind of crazy state of the world today and the fact that we've already crossed some really significant points where we're not going to be able to go back in terms of climate change and we're already losing species every day. And at the same time, I still feel very able to hold on to this hopeful vision. And it, it really does uh, motivate me and keep me like energized and excited to to do work that feels meaningful in the world. Um, so yeah, and it, the other thing that it that it really reinforced in in my group of friends is that we want to do more of this and we want to create more rituals for our community that we can do over time and and kind of re you know reinvent our holidays and you know maybe Valentine's Day becomes the day of agape where instead of we're you know thinking about just individual couple romantic love is the answer to everything and celebrating that we celebrate love for all of our community and our friends and the world and each other and just have like a, a big kind of love fest or, you know, we have, you know, just, ha- and, and some of these are, you know, maybe going back to more traditional holidays or we're honoring abundance on through the harvest in the fall or, you know, sort of more traditional pagan celebrations I think you know, getting rid of the, the consumerism and getting rid of the attachment to re- religious beliefs that, that many of us are not really on board with anymore and creating a set of annual rituals, holidays, that, that really have significance and meaning for us and that maybe other people can adopt or enjoy or, or take what they want from.
0: Yeah, I think you know, insofar as we can make this recursive and we can talk about one of the things that we have inherited from our parents' generation would include the hard won lesson that it doesn't really make sense to build it all from scratch. You know, we're not going to just give everyone acid and expect the new culture to magically appear, Yeah. you know, but that the real work is in, I guess Mm -hmm. we would call it reclaiming or re-territorializing what we've inherited, Mm. adapting it, you know, accepting it. It's like, even in, you know, even in, the pre-human evolutionary process it's not like feet just appeared i mean there was a fin and it was repurposed everything was repurposed and so you know again it's like rather than just proliferate new holidays there is something really appealing about repurposing the holidays that we already have and and it possibly like you're talking about on valentine's day you scratch the surface you know, you, you scratch off the embossed foil of that Valentine's card, <laughs> and yeah. underneath that uh, consumerist appropriation is the original heathen holiday, yeah. which, in which it, my understanding of the like the origin of Valentine's Day was that it was based on a Roman holiday in which people just sort of had sex in public.
1: <laughs> that it was that it was that just actually. that
0: the youth would like congregate in public spaces and just f- freely and publicly express their affections. Mm. <laughs> Again, it's like one of these things where we may actually be seizing the holiday in its original spirit out of the jaws of like the Coca-Cola Santa Claus version of it. Yeah. You know. And then also I don't know if you're a, like a Rudolf Steiner guy, but yeah, a little bit. This, the, you know his whole thing with Mikhail Moss and reclaiming not just Christmas and Easter yeah. But also Saint John's Day and and Michaelmas in the summer and, and fall, hmm. and using these as as ritual observances for each of the four seasons, and this much deeper layer of uh, the observances of the way that energy expands out of the land up hmm. into the you know flowering trees and and clouds in the summer, and then returns down into the soil, and then the, the sky becomes clear again, and we become transparent to. The sort of transpersonal mystery of our lives in the winter. Mm, yeah. This whole thing about you know Bucky Fuller saying that you know the further forward we want to look, the further back we have to start. Yeah. You know, and that inheritance day, stay. If we're gonna if we're gonna imagine 150 years in the future, then we got to at least at least look back 150 years <laughs> and and thank all of the people that got us to this point.
1: Oh my God! Yeah, you know, that, that's so important. And one of the things that's been really exciting to me to see out in the world um, this year, in particular, I've noticed it at, at Boom Festival, <clears throat> Symbiosis, even at Bioneers. So many uh, Indigenous elders being brought into these environments, and you know, many who of whom have never been to a festival. And there's just a lot more growing interest in reconnecting with these ancient wisdom traditions that you know many many of these cultures do know how to live in harmony with their plant with the planet and, and with the environment around them and have a lot of wisdom that has been lost or is being lost and so i absolutely agree that that looking back is is as important as looking forward and trying to kind of integrate you know i think integration is is one of the best words to describe you know what we're trying to do where it's like Take the pieces of all these wisdom traditions that make sense and that uh, you know work for us and for our communities and for the world, and integrate them into you know our own version that makes sense for us and in our culture, but that you know has this kind of like balance between these different tensions we've been talking about, and um, <clears throat> can lead us to this this more balanced way of being.
0: Right on, dude. <laughs> So I don't know. That that feels like a fairly round point. You know? It's like we've we've managed to touch on all of the bases I wanted to cover. Yeah. I don't know. Is, is anything else really alive for you right now? Where's yeah, Where's all of your uh, passion going right now?
1: Well, my passion right now has been how do I apply all of my my visions and ideas and, and things to my own life? Right now, I'm kind of reinventing everything in my life. What do I What do I work on? How do I live the life that I uh, want to be living and that I talk about and talk about creating it's kind of a lot up in the air and, and a lot of exciting and also daunting energy to to sort of manifest now um a lot of these things that feel very real and rich but um yeah they actually one final thing that i i listened to your uh talk uh, uh, the techno shamanism talk um the Mogfest you know, talk yeah 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 and I had this one idea that that had occurred to me a few months ago that I thought you might appreciate that actually feels like it kind of relates to what we were just talking about, this looking back, looking forward, finding like this integrated whole. And it, it came up, you were talking about, you know, this idea that maybe we're in a simulated universe and, you know, because we are likely going to be able to simulate a universe in the not too distant future with our technology that probably means that we're not the first ones that could ever do that and so it's almost certainly true that we are in a simulation for oh some no we're the things. first we're the first for sure <laughs> well you know, whatever's true <laughs> it's an interesting idea too yeah. um and so i had this thought the other day pondering this idea where you know if if we're in a simulation then probably whoever created this simulation is watching us right it is is measuring the simulation is, is like paying attention to how it's developing. Gross, but okay. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, we have these, these watchers, you could even think of them as gods, right? In the sense that they like created our universe, Uh maybe could even influence it in ways that we're unaware of. And, you know, in the future, maybe we're going to simulate some universes and we'll be this kind of like gods of these future universes. And so, you know, think of it. if, If, if there are these people watching us, then they're learning from us, right? I mean, as much as they like are the ones who created this, this universe, at the same time, they're just letting the simulation unfold and they're kind of learning and watching us and whatever we're doing is, is probably potentially influencing how they're working in their universe. So I really like this idea of thinking about how we're kind of like influencing our creators through our actions in some way. Mm. So not only are we... Creating and everything that we do, we're sort of influencing the future. But in some way, you could think of us as sort of influencing the gods, right? And the fun, like phrase is this kind of part of this fractal godhood, where. You know, there's potentially these these people who created our universe and are watching us, but also being influenced by us who are then influencing the people above them and sort of all the way down mm. um, in this sort of backwards, forwards, circular, fractal godhead. It's really.
0: Fun then thought. you get into the issue of the event horizon and how is information actually escaping a black hole? Like if we really are like inside of that boundary, can we, you know, can we be observed? Are you like, are we making universes all the time and we don't even recognize them because we're, but you know, <laughs> I do true. like, I do <laughs> like that though. Like I do like, I like the the notion that when you get into the, the, prag- the practicality of it, like why make a simulation? Well, it's clearly it's because you intend to learn something from it. Right. Right. You know, so, I mean, that means that all of us have at least this, uh, this potential to regard our lives as, informative to (laughs) beings that we might otherwise take this sort of uh, terrified Cthulhu type response to, you know, it's like, no, God is actually very interested in what you, uh, what, you know, food you post to Instagram.
1: (laughs) Totally. It's a fun sort of empowering way to think of our own agency and influence in the world and, and also like circular, we're all interconnected, right? Including the gods. <laughs> mm. um. Well, that's like the tea fairy. I don't know if you know her.
0: Um, kind of a heroic rock star psychonaut. Writes for Arrowhead. And, mm-hmm. and she lives her whole We're going to get her on the show, hopefully, pretty soon. <laughs> she lives her whole life with the thought experiment. Well, if my life is of interest to these mysterious, invisible, transcendental observers, then I should really be doing everything in my power to just rock out and be as awesome as possible. And like, yeah, exactly. you know, don't I, don't I want to make good on this platform that I have to, yeah. you know, totally. there's like, if, if the future is watching, then don't you want to make sure that you say something valuable? Exactly. Uh, I love it. Well, thanks a lot for joining us on the show. Tibet yeah, Sprig. I'm going to post the links to some of your, your essays on medium But uh, where else can people find your work or uh, connect to you online?
1: I'm just in the beginning processes of throwing up TibetsBrague.com for the first time in my life, surprisingly. So I, you know, right now it's pretty basic, but I do have links to Medium and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and the things that I'm doing there. So that's probably the easiest link to share, TibetsBrague.com. Cool. And I do hope and plan to be writing a lot more in the near future as I have a little bit of a time while I'm figuring out my life, now's the time to share ideas and put some ideas into writing. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to continuing all these, these types of conversations with anyone and everyone who wants to.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And I look forward to connecting with you beyond the envelope of this recording and, and yeah. uh, seeing what we and our, all of our friends can do to help usher forth this better world. <laughs>
1: Totally, thanks, Michael. Yeah, it's been really fun. Well, we think we you know is pretty amazing, and you know, understanding that we've got
0: uh, you know, we got a lot more to learn. The work is not done here. And we may not ever figure it out. We probably won't figure. Think-